Welcome to another episode of the Leaders Performance Podcast, this time as part of the State of Play series. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I'd like to say hello again to all the returning listeners and say a big welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time. The pace of change in high performance has accelerated and we are entering a new era for performance, but what is the state of play and how is high performance evolving? The Leaders State of Play series explores these themes across a series of webinars, articles and podcasts. If you want to push your thinking and actions even further, find out more about joining our unrivaled network of the world's high performance community by visiting www.leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. We're delighted to bring you this podcast in partnership with the Elite Performance Partners. You'll hear from Dave Slemon shortly as he co-hosts this podcast with me. And you may have heard of the tremendous work that he, Anna and the rest of the EPP team have been doing this year. EPP are a search selection advisory firm working across elite sport and specialising in performance. And they support, build and grow high performing teams through their advisory, search and selection and leadership development services. Head to eppartners.co.uk to find out more. Now on to today's episode. Today I have the pleasure of hosting this podcast alongside someone we at Leaders have known a very long time and someone I've got to know even more so this year through our partnership with them. It's founding partner of Elite Performance Partners. It's Dave Summer. How are you today, Dave? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I'm very well. How are you? Yes, not too bad. Getting closer to Christmas. Just as busy as it was a few months ago, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we're just cramming in 30 days work into eight. So it's uh, suddenly much more stressful. <laughs> Absolutely, definitely a challenge. Good stuff. Well, I guess today is someone that uh, a lot of you will be familiar with, especially if you tuned into our webinar a month or so ago, uh, which was on the topic of specialists, generalists, and the right and the rise of them. And that was his moderating debut. But his day-to-day job is the performance director of England Cricket. It's Mo Bobak. Good morning, Mo. How are you? Hi, Matt. Uh, really good. Thanks. Hope you're well. Dave, good to connect again. Hope you're both well. Not bad at all. I'm sure you're just as busy. Uh, actually, definitely than both of both of us. Um, <laughs> Dave, I know you had a few thoughts and and, and questions just because. Uh, we're going to jump in a couple of different areas, a little bit of a continued discussion from that webinar a month ago, uh, and also delving into a couple of other topics. So I just don't know if you want to set the scene and then maybe kick off with a question to Mike. Thanks, Mark. Well, we talked about last time, we obviously had the webinar where we were talking about specialist generalists. So that's what we last caught up on. And the need to bring in different experience sets and backgrounds together, you know, to create high performing teams and, and why those different ideas are useful. And, and I think, so there's a diversity in a number of different ways. And then I think what's interesting is how you break down silos and how you, um, the generalist point is really about leadership. And, you know, that's the piece that I thought would be the most interesting to look at both, I guess, conceptually, what are the areas and kind of what do we see? But also, how do you do that practically on the ground? Because, you know, a lot of the people who will be listening to these podcasts are people who genuinely need some help with guidance and wanting to know how other people do things. So, to that point, now, you know, looking at kind of breaking down silos, do you have any thoughts on kind of like, you know, how you go about doing that? I know from your experience coming from initially kind of a talent specialist announced that general leadership role, do you have any thoughts around around how you go about doing that? Yeah, look, it's, it's a great line of question. And I suppose a good place to start, you know, even before we get into the practical stuff, it's like, what are we trying to achieve and why? So in essence, we're all problem solving, aren't we? You know, we're, in, in our world, we're trying to we're trying to outfox our opposition to win cricket games, or it, it almost doesn't matter what your context is, but we're problem solved. And I think there's enough research and literature and, and sort of applied wisdom out there that, that suggests that homogenization of thought uh, and ideas probably isn't a great way to problem solve. So what we're trying to do is move away from groupthink and conformity and silo thinking, uh, never mind silo structures, 
so that we have a more diverse set of perspectives feeding into our problem solving. So I'd say, firstly, it's just important to acknowledge and understand that. And then if, if that's your intent, you can set things up to try and achieve that. But look, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's certainly what we got to when we were talking last time around the concept of specialist generalists and just having people with an element of breadth that can bring different perspectives into a scenario. It could be that, that you know, you've got individuals in your team that bring a different sporting context. It might be environments outside of sport. It might be people with a real academic grounding and those who have real deep sporting wisdom. You know, I think there's a number of different angles and perspectives that you can look at something. And I think in, inevitably, I guess for me, it just helps us to problem solve. And I guess the challenge though is that on the whole, the majority of sporting teams that we work with they are fairly homogenous in terms of experience. If you work with a football or rugby or cricket, they would tend to have worked just in that sport. So there is a challenge there to think differently. Is there, are there ways in which you kind of proactively or kind of engineer those kind of scenarios, recognising that people maybe think a bit too alike? Yeah, look, there are. And I'll get into a few examples. But when, as you were saying that, it got me thinking, actually, and, and, and you're right. You know, if you did a dissection of the, the sporting talent pool in terms of staff that work in high-performance teams, we'd probably, probably operate along quite a small bandwidth when it comes to society people and and i think one of the things that kind of exacerbates that a little bit is the fact that we all you know sport we spend so much time talking about things like culture and identity and therefore like that feeling of belonging is really important for all of us and it's what we use to galvanize our teams to win games or even our athletes if you work in individual sports to, to win games we talk about identity and belonging and culture but the problem is that feeds into conformity to a degree because typically as social beings when we talk about conformity people typically conform because they either want to be liked by the people around them and have that sense of longing or they want to be proven to be right that's why people conform so i guess in, coming back to your question one of the first things you need to do is probably create environments where being light isn't the driver and certainly have set up scenarios where there isn't necessarily a right or wrong in some cases there are but in other cases there isn't so if, you, if you're doing something where creativity is the desired outcome you don't want to put a right or wrong filter on it you want to make sure that almost you know you don't move towards that end point within that first brainstorming session so people have a chance to share thoughts and share views without without feeling like i'm going to be right or i'm going to be wrong so, so i'd say my first idea for you would kind of be that is it's how you set up environments where creativity and diversity of perspectives is something that you're looking for while removing the desire for people to feel like they're going to be liked or which is quite tricky i appreciate but certainly removing the desire for people to either get things right or wrong would, would be my first uh, probably a second point would simply be and this one's quite broad is investing time in understanding how to lead and facilitate meetings you know it sounds like a small thing but i'm sure we've all been in environments and probably done plenty of these myself as well as a leader where a, a meeting just runs in such a dysfunctional way that you simply feed into groupthink conformity biases shared assumptions and you know you don't you don't do that problem solving in a really rich way so so i'd say it's, it's an underrated skill set for leaders in how to facilitate meetings and we've obviously all been adapting to doing that in a more virtual way recently uh, and there's a number of ideas we might get into that i think you could but the, i suppose my third thing would then be the leader's behaviors as well you know as an individual how does the leader behave and what behavior does that then you know translate to the rest of their team or their followers uh, because again that can have a massive impact and there might be things that you and i explore in a bit more detail but certainly they would be sort of three headline things there's some of the cultural stuff and framing uh, there's a bit around meeting design and facilitation and when i say meeting that could be team talks you know it doesn't have to be formal structure and then certainly some of the leader behaviors is something worth considering as well yeah, I'd actually look at it the other way around. So the way you've articulated that spot on, and I was thinking about this around, you know, going from specialist generalist and the, 
the generalist being more of the softer leadership type qualities or capabilities of what we see make good leaders. And there's two that I wrote down. And the second one, you've just given a real version of actually this trait, which is vulnerability. So you aren't there to be right. And I think often people position into those roles and suddenly they've never been in the leadership role before. So they feel like they need to show that they're right. And the reality is, is that often others with less experience and, and with different views, you know, they may have the solution when you don't. Or there could be many different solutions depending on where you stand. The way we look at it is you know, your role as a leader is to create an environment to enable other voices to be heard and, and for views and opinions to come out, not to shape them necessarily. And I think that's kind of the quality that you're, if I'm right, kind of alluding to in terms of behaviours. And I don't, I think people under, leaders underestimate the power their behaviours can have on others, which I'll come on to in a minute. But I don't know if you think about that. Is that it, would you say that's kind of vulnerabilities at the core of that? Without without question, I, you know, I can think of people that I've learned from and observed, and I'll give two good examples. Andrew Strauss was someone I worked quite closely with for a period. He was our director of England cricket when I was in my previous role, leading talent ID. And you know, a number of things struck me about him. But one of the things that struck me about him, he was very prepared in a meeting to be the person that didn't know, and he would ask really good, curious questions. And you could visibly see him learning, which I think role modeled that to everybody else. So that was certainly something that I picked up from him. And and he could also shift on the continuum and do the instruction and inspirational dialogue from his perspective. But at the same time, he could shift on the continuum and be really vulnerable in his own learning and, and be okay not being the expert. So he's one good example that comes to mind. And then another is is Ed Smith, who leads on our, is our national selector. And again, we, we often go into, say, scout meetings or selection meetings, and he's very good at making sure that he speaks last. And what he'll do is he'll make sure that he, he galvanises opinion from a number of other people, and partly because he's genuinely interested in other people's views, and he doesn't want his view to infiltrate their thinking too early. So he's very good at, at how he designs meetings to try and elicit information from other people first in a really safe way before then he gives his own. So... So yeah, look, I think role modelling that is, is a great point. And there's a couple of good examples there of people I've worked with that I've definitely learned from. You kind of alluded to the second point around self-awareness is those guys probably know who who they are, but also how they appear to others. So I imagine Andrew Strauss, you know, if your former England captain would, certain people would hold him in high esteem and it might be more difficult for um, for them to feel that they can step forward. I know that, you know, there's, there's different psychobiotic profiling. I know the Hogan one for me was one that kind of <laughs> was an eye-opener for me when you suddenly have that realisation that how people perceive you is not the same as how you perceive yourself. And that actually, as a core thing, is quite a hard thing to to realise. I don't know if you've had, had similar situations, Mo, of how people perceive you being different. And, and maybe if that's with you in the more senior role now, whether that's changed or whether you've be, managed to be quite consistent in how you've acted. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I, I won't be, this will be, yeah, I won't be able to reference this because I can't remember where I got it from. But I, you know, I once heard someone talk about the hippo, you know, the highest paid person's opinion uh, and how much weight that carries. So even if you go in a meeting and you're not the person leading it, it's quite important to quickly work out and ascertain who the hippo is in the room uh, because you'll see how people hang on to the weight of their words. So yeah, look, you know, totally. I think that, that makes a huge amount of sense, but but having that understanding of who those people are and then if you're leading the meeting, you know, you might not be the hippo, but if you're leading that meeting, have an understanding of who those people are and what impact they have on the dynamics, I think is really important and a little tip that you can probably look at to as you say, it's about really understanding the kind of lead you are. But there's, there's definitely ways that you said you can create conditions, isn't it? Or use almost, I don't know if tricks is the right word, but things that you can do to help. So I'm not a huge fan of kind of psychometric testing for the sake of it. But if you subscribe to certain types of 
of people. If you, if you were, say, and we've I've seen, think of a couple of examples of this, of, say, an introvert, who you can definitely set up conditions for them to succeed. So little things like don't give somebody papers at that moment like, and ask them for a view. You know, give them a bit of time before a meeting to kind of be able to digest things so they have time to respond. Or even kind of, I've seen another team that we've worked with where you ask everyone in the room to write down their answers or thoughts before people start speaking. Uh, so it's a different way, I guess, of setting those conditions so no one feels the hippo point that they have to kind of lean towards the answer that they that that person has said. I don't know if you have any other kind of examples of that. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, it starts with having real clear purpose for a meeting or a get-together or, yeah. or an event anyway. You know, in many cases, there's a theme and people get together and they think it's a chat and there's an agenda. But but what is it? You know, is the purpose of it to do some debating? Because if it is, you can set the meeting up in one way. If the purpose is for creative thinking, you set it up a different way. If the purpose is to get work done, uh, yeah. actually it's project type work, that's very different. You know, often we get into meetings and it's just information sharing. Well, what's the point? You could have sent a document. So again, it comes back to quite simply people understanding the purpose behind get-togethers and not having the same default structure to every get-together because it might not match the theme. So I think I think purpose is key uh, without question. But yeah, look, some of the examples you gave are really good ones. You know, independently submitting things is quite a good way of getting opinions through and, and sort of unweighting it. Again, mm-hmm. that's we often do with selection. We, we, you know, my previous role as talent ID lead, I would often go into a selection phase, and as a as a non decision maker in that environment, I would capture information and input from all the decision makers, the selectors, and I would aggregate that. And then the next day, I would do a bit of a creative exercise where we do a bit of a reveal, and then we it frees up the time in the meeting to get into debate. You start going, well, selector X had this player in their team and select a wire to someone else in their team. Let's debate and discuss. Let's interrogate the evidence. You've almost fast-tracked to the debate, you know, quicker. So that's, you know, independent submissions are, are, are a good thing. I think also you can you can give people roles in meetings, like forced yeah. perspective switch. So you could tell your head coach and say, look, for the, for the purpose of this meeting, I'd really like you to try and assume the mindset of, you know, the head of science and medicine uh, or even vice versa. You know, you give someone the, the permission in the room to, to assume the position of a a playing perspective now it's quite hard because you naturally gravitate back to your norm but mm. forcing people to do that is a good way again of almost getting those diversity of perspective but also implicitly creating empathy within your leadership and your team so that will start to appreciate other people's perspective challenges and problems so look, there's, a, there's a number of things there that i think you can do as, as tactics similar to the things that you talked about as well I was going to ask them, do you feel a responsibility in your role then to develop people in your team to be those kind of more rounded team members or individuals? I think we touched upon it in the webinar a little bit around those softer skills. Is there is there a, is there a pressure that comes with that in your role or do you feel it's your obligation? Yeah, well, I was going to, you almost got to it there. I was going to say it's my responsibility. Uh, I, I try to take, obviously I won't always get it right, but I try to take a leadership approach where I'm coaching the, the people within my team to keep growing individually and collectively. And I, I, you know, I, I want myself to be as adaptable as possible but I want people in my team to be adaptable so that we you know we work out quite quickly what are some of our strengths that we can rely on when we when we're working with each other what are some of our blind spots and weaknesses that we can support each other with and try and grow and challenge but also cover for each other and are we able to occupy different spaces you, you clearly you need to know your basics and the main things you're responsible for because we all have different responsibilities within the team but if we can assume different perspectives and different positions it just helps us adapt so, yeah, totally. I, I'll often try and play the role of checking and challenging my team so that we all try to adapt a little bit more and we can cover for each other and help each other out. And 
there's been no greater need for that than what we've experienced with COVID recently. You know, a great example is I'm, I'm at a performance center at the minute and we've got our, our young lions group, which is our under 19s together on a camp. Uh, well, given what happened with COVID, I at very short notice had to send our normal under 19 head coach out with the England lad to South Africa in, in which, which meant that he needed cover here and someone had to step up and adapt to fulfilling his role without having done it. Well, that, that person I put in to replace him has done an excellent job uh, for the last few weeks. And then this is our final camp this week. And he's now isolating at home because his daughter's got, got COVID. So I need, I need a sub for the sub. Uh, and basically what, what I'm asking is for a lot of our staff having to adapt and assume different roles and cover for each other. I think that in time will really, you know, will add expertise to all of those people. And it goes to the heart of that the points of our last call where we were talking about specialist generalists and people will be able to do more across a, a greater breadth. So yeah, I think that's ultimately my responsibility. And does that help you identify the the gaps in your team? You know, if you're looking to build out your team, I guess the, the obvious answer is going to be yes, but hopefully you can kind of build on a bit more. But then going through that process and having that mindset probably gives you a more rounded view on think, well, actually... Yeah, I could really add a real new dimension to this team I have by by bringing someone with, with this quality. Is, is that also the way you think about it? Yeah, definitely. And people often, and this will be days of expertise, when you get into recruitment of staff, people often talk about fit. And that can quite easily be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Fit doesn't mean I want someone who matches everything that we've already got. It should be a complementary fit. You might have some core areas that you want to make sure there is alignment. You know, they could be fundamental beliefs around an area, but ultimately you want people who can solve a similar problem in a different way and will come in at a different angle and add something to your team. So so I think, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, you certainly, you know, you certainly w- want to be getting to a point where you've got those, that, that blend and mix of people in your team that can do that. So recruiting in that way is, is really important. But, but I think the other thing that's also key is it, I think it's about succession planning. The more you encourage your staff to adapt, you know, clearly, again, you want them to develop that deep expertise in their core responsibility, but you want them to be able to adapt and do more. And it gives you a greater idea of what they're capable of in the future. And, and you're growing them as individuals because I feel really strongly that I, I want to support all of my staff to go on to do roles far beyond what they do now, if that's what their aspirations are. That might be with us. It might be not with us. It might be in other environments. If somebody left my team and got a senior role, elsewhere and some of the experiences they'd had within my working environment had helped them get that I'd feel incredibly proud of that so I think it, yeah it is, it's also about entry recruitment you're right but it's also about exit how do you how do you arm people with the skill set so they can go on and do even more special things than they've done with you I'm, I'm sure Dave's got a view on that as well yeah I think it was actually one area that we weren't we didn't have time to get onto on the last call about cultural fit because I, th- I think it can be slightly misunderstood because one way that you can look at it is if you're wanting a cultural fit you're going to get somebody who's like everybody else and you're only going to you know perpetuate the problems that we're having around diversity and I, well that it's not what we mean it, it's to think about cultural fit it can be you know it can be called something different like cultural ad but the piece is more about understanding what are the core components outside of the the, um, the technical skill you need or the type of leadership skills of like, what are these person's values or what's the organizational values? What does it stand for? What's its purpose? And aligning to that. And I think, you know, the other piece is, you know, to hire for diversity, actually you need to hire for potential. So there's a huge piece around cultural fit around to consider inclusion. You know, there's no point in making great hires if they don't stay. So cultural fit to me is around creating environments where people can thrive. So it's obviously difficult in certain areas if those candidates don't currently exist, but nobody's the complete fit. Like we have a saying that, you know, no candidate's ever more than 80% fit against a theoretical brief. And the basic maths behind that number is that 
we typically have five criteria and there's very rarely anybody who's brilliant at all five it's, they tend to be good at four and there's always one area to develop or at least one area it's just about okay get good people in and then how do you support those people to grow in the role with the right team around them because there's something that just strikes me within sport we develop players that that's kind of we look for potential in players and we have pathways for them but the on the whole sport's pretty poor at developing staff and leaders within the non-playing area so yeah that's just the kind of point i'd make further on the culture but i think if you do have a criteria-based approach to how you recruit people and buyers is what we do <laughs> but it allows you to hire for potential it allows you not to look for the perfect fit because it does not exist these are human beings who have flaws and make mistakes but to create an environment where those people can thrive. And I imagine you do that for your players, Mo. I, um, I don't know what you think about it for staff as well, but or even for you, kind of in your new role maybe, but how you actually go about creating those environments. Yeah, and I was, I was talking about this kind of stuff just yesterday with uh, someone in our HR department because I'm going to be recruiting for some roles soon, so it's very topical. And we were, we were trying to understand, you know, as always trying to recruit in a more sophisticated and a better way. Uh, and, and some simply, and this might be very basic, but the way I always look at it is, you know, by the time someone gets to interview stage, you should, even before interview, you should have a reasonable understanding of uh, th- their experiences, their relevant experiences, and their likely competency. For me, I, for me, that that isn't the purpose of an interview to get to those things, because actually you can read those things off a CV, you know, like you need to look at someone's roles that they've fulfilled and you can make some fairly safe assumptions around what they have done and what they're capable of. For me, when I get to interview phase, the things I'm trying to work out there is something that's really important to me is is one level of motivation and their motives. That's really important because I've always thought that if you've got someone where you, they might have questionable motives or motivation, that, selfishly, that's a very difficult leadership challenge. Whereas if you've got someone who's got high levels of motivation that are well aligned to your values as, as an organization or as a, a culture, that's a far more exciting leadership challenge because you've got someone who's got a base level of motivation and all you then need to do is inspire them. Well, I'd rather be spending my time trying to inspire someone than having to motivate them at a really base level. So for me, when it comes to, to that perspective, motivation is key. And then it's a case of like, what are they adding? You know, the point that you made, uh, what are they adding to the team? Like, what, you know, are they going to bring a different perspective? Are they going to get the best out of somebody else, How, almost thinking in your head as well, what are the combinations? Like, what's this person going to work like with the other key relationships I know they're going to need to have? Because that could be something that unlocks unlocks somebody else and they thrive as a pair. So I think you're th- trying to think about all of those things rather than just quite simply, well, can, you know, ticking off a load of competencies that people might have done in the past. So, and, and then, you know, the, the other thing that I'd kind of open the door for us to maybe talking about is it also comes back to the interplay between your your strategy and your organizational charts and you know and your recruitment because i think what a lot of people do at times and i'm sure i've again been guilty of it myself you kind of you write your strategy based on a loose sort of organizational structure you have in your head and what i mean by that is you know you probably have coaching sat in one box you might have physical preparation sat in another box you might have some of your medical stuff sat somewhere else you have psychology we've got these we've got these you know then you have operations somewhere else or coach development and we've got these structures in our mind and then we write a strategy and i think that's really dangerous actually i I think you should you should with your strategy you should be going back to what what performance problems are you trying to solve what's the vision and then which areas do you want to make sure you have an impact that bring you closer to that vision uh, and that that might be mapping out a real clear strategic intent across a number of areas that solve a problem 
and then actually the organizational stuff doesn't really matter like you almost need to understand your strategy and your problem solving approach first and then think about organizational structures but i've certainly been in environments where actually you've got you've got either programs that create your structure or departments that create your structure and then we write strategic aims for each one of those departments or each one of those programs and, and i just don't think that's the way to approach it i think we should be embracing the crossover between those different functions when we write our strategies and then organically you're forcing people to work together more what's really interesting is that i'm going to kind of um <laughs> rule out a part of my business now but we have a piece around systems and structures and people come to us often we see a lot of what of different team structures so we can see how they all look and often kind of a senior leader will go right what, what's the ideal structure and i'm like there isn't one because structure's absolutely secondary and there is a comfort i think to seeing how an organization looks but that's not what it feels like or what the environment is you know you kind of there is a tendency to focus on things that you can measure, understandably, and they are important. But if you look at the things that are really important that you, are more difficult to measure, like relationships and culture and environment, and I, and I think to your point, no, you're absolutely right. If you if you focus on what's your vision of what this might look like, what's the strategy going to be, and then the, the the structure can fit in with that, not the other way around. And I think you can be a bit more adaptable if you look at kind of the crystal team of team stuff, where the world's becoming more agile and you know, project teams can be brought up to build stuff. And actually, thinking about it, that was the theme, um, my segue into the specialist generalist thing, wasn't it? So you can ha maybe have a smaller team and you can bring in specialists at different times with deep specialism. That was one of the things we talked about, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that will certainly be the way things move. And, you know, as you were talking now, I was thinking myself that actually, inevitably, when people are so fixed on structures, they, they have what is the published structure. And then in reality, there's probably a shadow structure. You know, there, there's what's actually going on behind the scenes when people muck in and cover for others or they offer their skill set or whatever. And I think, again, the leader is quite useful to try and ask yourself, right, is there a shadow structure at play that would actually be a better model for you to give some thought to? But, yeah, when you're writing strategy, I just think it's clear to be really clear on, like, what's, what's the broader aim or the vision? What areas do you want to have an impact or that you really think you need some strategic intent in? And then worry about who and how and how that crosses over, you know, across sort of normal department structures, those things don't even matter, I think. I think we're bound in our habits when it comes to things like high performance. You know, and we talked about this, I think, last time as well. Many of us as leaders, it's our desire to provide structure or order to something that doesn't always necessarily benefit from order, and we don't always do that the right way. Yeah, I think it reminded me of a thought around the structure is important, but you're kind of like, what's the influence map? So who's actually, you, know, you go to a place and you go, you want to know how this place works? Speak to that guy. <laughs> you know, it's kind of just understanding the different dynamics within somewhere, you know, so that people's important. And I think if you do have a clear vision and you have a strategy, you know, what we've seen is that that stuff tends to be, most teams will have them, but equally, they don't talk about it nearly enough. And it's not, there's a bit of a thing, you know, with a couple of teams we work with, well, we don't want the values put on the wall because, you know, we're just going to do it. I'm like, oh, what are they? Oh, I can't remember. All right. You need them written on the wall, and don't you? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like nothing wrong with having them up there. Helps people remember. <laughs> um, but something you can constantly, you know, every four or six weeks, even bringing it up and talking about it, even every meeting, talking about those. I don't know how you do that though, but just talking about it quite regularly. Many of those things. So we've tried to, when it comes to things like strategic stuff, and you know, the model that I've tried, I've been trying to work with has been a bit like I've described, really being really clear on the broader ambition, you know, having six or eight areas that we know we need to have an impact to achieve that ambition. And then within each of those impact areas, 
like just having some tactics and then those tactics there's a real uh, mix and blend of people contributing like across functions ultimately with a view to us achieving impact that's the key thing and the reason I went with impact areas was naturally they lend themselves to be, being measurable from my perspective without without over forcing KPIs down people's throat the impact area is quite obvious you know one impact area within my my strategy is players improving it's really really simple like you know there's only two words to it it's not that hard to, hard to remember and I can easily throw at all of my staff well how do we know players are improving and it just becomes the lexicon and the language that we use all the time that brings us back to some real basics one of the things that I see often in sports and I try my best to get experience across a, a range of different sporting environments and elite sporting environments what you often see is if you have a leader who doesn't necessarily role model that cross-connection the diversity of perspectives the integration of different teams and functions what you never inevitably get is you get a load of stifled expertise you get loads of great people with loads of capacity and potential and they're doing loads of really good thinking and in their teams they might publish loads of nice documents but they're just not impacting on the outcome because the head coach the performance director or sporting director or whoever just not buying into it and I, I see a lot of that you know and I'm sure there's pockets of that even within our organization I'm not for one minute saying that we're perfect but you see that unless it's role modeled authentically from the top and and people are feel like they, they're safe to stick their neck out in some of those areas you just get people sticking to their silos and, and, and safety and you get the hippos dominating and that's why I think a really powerful tool for a leader is permission giving you know as a leader i try to ask of my team i give them permission to drag me back to my strengths but also to help me out with my weaknesses and then equally as, as a team i try and give them permission to do that with each other and to step up in spaces and i, and I think that just using that word in, in itself as a leader talking to one of your direct reports you know you know physically saying look i'm giving you permission to do this i think is such an empowering thing and i, and I think doing that kind of almost like a force multiplier effect in that, that all of your team then start taking ownership for areas and helping each other out. Yeah, and do you know what? I think a lot of that is comes back to kind of self-awareness because I think a lot of people think they are, but maybe aren't quite explicitly enough in that people... So if you want a collaborative group, you've got to lead by example. And if you show you listen to other views and act on them, then others will follow. In sport, you know, coach, a head coach would be a, a prime example you know, if, you, if your body language is bad when somebody makes a mistake, then actually you, you don't allow mistakes, even though you might not have said anything. You know, you've got to be aware of the power of your own body language. And, and I guess it would be the similar situation with you as a leader as well, Mo. It's so, something that where so many leaders can do work on it because people just don't realise the impact of their actions, I don't think. That, that's an area that I'm massively growing in and trying to grow in myself at the minute. And it's a big learning curve because I'm very aware myself that... <laughs> I'm relatively obsessive about certain things, which easily pushes me into some perfectionist tendencies, which isn't always great if that's the message that you're giving to people because it might prevent them from taking risks or making mistakes or whatever. So I, I myself try to strike a balance if I can, and, and it's definitely a work on of maintaining your, your real high standards. And there's nothing wrong with having perfectionist tendencies because you want to set the bar high. But enabling people still to feel safe enough to have a crack at something or make mistakes or do some creative thinking and you know certainly I'm, I'm still learning of how I kind of role model that and how, how I display that myself across a number of environments whether that's problem solving in a meeting whether that's even just my own habits around work you know I, I became very aware that when I got appointed into the role that I'm in now as performance director and you know, I oversee our national performance centre from a men's perspective and a fairly large team. But even something small like the time that I arrive to work 
and the time that I leave. It sounds like such small things, but they have a massive impact on people's view of how they think I'm going to value their work. So if I'm at my desk every day at seven o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning, it, naturally that's going to put some of my staff under pressure to think that that's what's expected of them as well. And if I leave at six or seven every night, that's the same. And what my behavior is actually demonstrating there is that maybe I'm not demonstrating a great work-life balance when actually my values would be that I'm really happy with flexibility there. So I almost deliberately try and make sure that I don't behave in that way so that my, my even without me saying anything, my staff feels safe enough, hopefully, to know that, well, it doesn't matter if you have the morning working from home because you've got to look after your kids, you know, or because I know I'm going to trust you to make it up on another day. Like, as long as we're having an impact, if I go back to my strategy, if we're having an impact in the areas that we need to in a timely way, that, that's what really matters, you know, how people get there. We've got to trust that. So, yeah, across a number of domains and environments, I think that's a really relevant area. Because actually for you, that you, know, you, you could turn around, couldn't you, and say, well, it doesn't matter to me. So it's not the point. <laughs> it's, it's how it impacts some of the people. <laughs> and so I think if you're aware of that, you probably... And also you've got to give people a break. You're not going to be perfect all the time. and People are going to make mistakes as long as you create an environment where people feel they can. Um, there's a great start about the most successful teams and it isn't the teams that makes the least or most mistakes. It's the teams that admit to making the, the mistakes <laughs> that are the most successful. Not that's an excuse to make those mistakes, obviously, but if you can create that, I guess it's about psychological safety, isn't it? And creating an environment where where you can do that. Yeah, and it's a it's a great point. It's a fine balance of, to a degree, normalising dysfunction. You know, dysfunction is going to exist. So you've got to normalise that to a degree. But you clearly don't want to encourage it. You want to minimise it if you can. So so if you, if you can minimise dysfunction, you're probably going to win more games than you lose. And you probably, if you're less dysfunctional than your opposition, you probably do quite well. And that's often forgotten. You know, that that's another way of saying world-class basics or nailing your basics that people talk about, you know, whatever that is. So to a degree, you want to normalise an element of dysfunction and make people feel okay with it. So there's not threat in the system. But at the same time, doesn't mean we're accepting of it. We want to try and get better and, and try to, I guess, minimise dysfunction, particularly in comparison to your opposition. So, yeah, totally. I think that makes sense. How do you embrace kind of an ind- individuality within a team setting? Because there's a tension there and there's an inevitable, yeah, I wouldn't call it conflict, I call it tension. How do you be yourself? But how do you adhere to the team principles? Do you have any kind of philosophy on that? Well, it's quite a difficult question, I think. Uh, I suppose... <laughs> I, no, I think- no, I think it starts by uh, it starts by probably taking the time and investing time in understanding each other first. Like, yeah, I don't feel like I can create an environment where all individuals can thrive if I don't know them as individuals. So, and that's been really tricky for me. And you know, obviously, I, I got promoted from within. I didn't come from outside the organisation in here, so I had existing relationships with people. But the nature of my relationship with each of them has obviously shifted and changed. Now we've gone from being peers to me being their line manager from a uh, from a formal sense. You know, I've got to I've got to invest time into that dynamic, but also try and spend social time with each other so we can really understand each other beyond the working context, because that's when we might see people at their best. You know, certainly through COVID in the last year or so, it's been quite tricky for us to do some of that stuff. And I've got some of my my pathway leaders group together, you know, quite a bit over the last couple of months because we've been trying to do some new work and it was quite obvious that we're all missing a bit of that social connection and social time because cricket, we get quite a lot of that actually because of the nature of our game. But it's been something that we've all been missing a little bit and I'm quite I'm quite hungry to make sure that when we get beyond hopefully the current constraints that we're all operating in, that we get a bit more individual time together without work being the main topic area. And I think they once, I, once we recalibrate, get a better understanding of that, I think you can then start to individualize and flex and and move towards environments that bring the best out of individuals uh so yeah that, that's probably my my sort of headline level attempt to answering what's quite a difficult question yeah 
Sorry about that. I put you on the spot there, Mo, isn't yeah. it? But I just thought I'd uh, kind of finish on a couple of points. I'm going to put you both on the spot and I'm not going to re-ask uh, what were your performance superpower question we've covered <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the webinar. Um, yeah, but we, we obviously we are coming to the end of the year. I don't know if there's you know, a, a couple of things. One, be interested to know for both of you if there's a, a leadership trait that you feel has just been more important than ever uh, in, in 2020. Uh, Dave, I'll throw it to you. I think I, I will go back to the two traits that don't get talked about enough or undervalued, and that self-awareness, as you say, really knowing yourself and knowing strengths and weaknesses, how you are perceived and how you, how you come across in good times and under pressure. I think that's really important. And I think the second piece is around vulnerability. You know, we've done some end-of-season reviews for teams, and, you know, athletes are by nature sometimes a little bit, but as every human being is, insecure, and they need support within their environments. And... I think leaders who can be open to not having all the answers, um, as Mo explained, Andrew Strauss was very good at. And I think it's such an undervalued trait. And as soon as you show that you don't, and we see it in candidates when we're interviewing people of leaders, as soon as you say, God, I, I got that wrong. I just didn't know the answer. As soon, you become human instantly. You're not trying to put yourself on a pedestal. You're showing that you're fallible like every other bit. So and it's, it, it relaxes people around you and it's a great leadership trait and it's undervalued. So self-awareness and vulnerability are yeah, probably the two that stand out for me. Definitely agree. Mike, anything to add? Yeah, and I suppose my answer will be heavily influenced by what we've all been through this year. Uh, but a couple of things that stand out to me would be having the ability to help your system, your team or department, or whatever, tolerate uncertainty. Uh, I think is one. There's been loads of it this year. Uh, and naturally, we, we typically have a lot of people working with us who like to plan, like to periodize, like to think really far ahead. And that just hasn't been possible, I'm afraid. So the reality is you've got to be able to tolerate uncertainty. And I think a key bit of that is being able to role model it yourself. Because if you can do that, then I think others pick up on that. And then the second thing would be having the capability as a leader to make sound decisions during chaos. The reality is, you know, even someone like myself, who I, I like reflection time, I like to mull over decisions. You're not always afforded that. And I, I haven't been afforded that. You, you're having to make sure that you can have the brain space to deal with problems as they're arising in real time and make, make decisions and then quickly move on to the next thing uh, in a way that we probably, you know, hasn't been the case in the past. That, you know, that's been accelerated this year. So for me, they would be the two things, you know, and they're, they're obviously connected as well. You know, that ability to, to have your system tolerating uncertainty and role modeling that and then certainly be, being able to make sound decisions during relatively chaotic times. And even in periods when you don't have all the information that you might normally want, or certainly the time to make those decisions, but doing it in a way that you still follow the process of sorts and you've weighed up probabilities and you've done some rational thinking, and then actually then communicating and executing decisions, which obviously shouldn't be underestimated. They would be the two major things that stand out to me, Matt. Brilliant. No, all very good points. Well, well said. Well, gents, it's been a, a real pleasure to, to chat and to listen to to you once again I think we could have chatted for hours and appreciate your time Dave have a great Christmas congrats on such a successful year for you and Anna and the team with with EPP and Mo best of luck for the rest of the planning for 2021 and have a great Christmas and New Year too so thank you gents thanks Matt thanks Dave that's it for another episode but if you've enjoyed these podcasts you can find many more like it as well as our at home with leaders series on the leaders content hub as well as on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or your preferred platform Check us out at leaders underscore insight on Twitter as we'll post all our content on there as well. As I told you at the top of the episode, I've been working hard to provide our members with more access to the diverse knowledge, skills and networks they need as performance environments evolve.
If you want to push your thinking and actions even further, find out more about joining our unrivaled network of the world's high performance community by visiting leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Thanks to Dave, Anna and the rest of the Elite Performance Partners team for sponsoring this podcast as part of our State of Play series. As I said earlier, EPP are a research selection and advisory firm working across elite sport and specialising in performance. They support and build and grow high-performing teams through their advisory, search and selection and leadership development services. And if you want to find out more, head to eppartners.co.uk. Thank you to all the content team behind the scenes for putting these podcasts together. And thanks to our members and network for the continued support around these conversations. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon.